Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 3rd of February. Today, Gordon Brown faces a damaging series of strikes by public sector workers. What's so interesting about this is that the PCS is being incredibly strident about how it's approaching this. Um, They're really going for the maximum disruption and embarrassment for the government in the run-up to the election. A deathbed conversion, the Lib Dems say, as Brown promises legislation before the election on voting reform. Simon Hoggart's view of Claire Short, who quit the government over the Iraq war, as she gives evidence to the Chilcot inquiry. I thought this is the Attorney General coming just in the teeth of war to the Cabinet. It must be right. And I think he was misleading us. In other news, Avatar and The Hurt Locker lead the field as the Oscar nominations are announced. And why the cowboy who draws first doesn't draw fastest. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. Public sector workers are threatening a series of strikes in the run-up to the general election. The Public and Commercial Services Union, PCS, is balloting its 270,000 members. It says industrial action would bring maximum disruption to Gordon Brown's government. Polly Curtis, our Whitehall correspondent, is in our Westminster office. It's all over the payoff that, that civil servants get when they take voluntary or compulsory redundancies, which have historically been incredibly generous. They get up to three years' pay, and the government wants to reduce that to two years' pay, a cap of two years on, on the amount of money you can get, um, underpinned by £50,000, so no one would get less than £50,000. The PCS, the Public and Commercial Services Union, says that the reason it's so generous was because when Thatcher designed it. Um, It was in recognition of the very low pay that people in the civil service get. And these are people who work in benefits offices, tax offices, um, ports and airports. And so the idea was they got slightly better payoffs if they were laid off. The government's argument is that it's far more generous than the private sector and and it costs a lot of money and if they do what they're intending to do, they'll save half a billion pounds over three years. Still very damaging series of strikes just coming up to the general election. Can the government resolve this dispute without industrial action taking place? Well, what's so interesting about this is that the PCS is being incredibly strident about how it's approaching this. Um, they're really going for the maximum disruption and embarrassment for the government in the run-up to the election and they'll be targeting marginal seats, trying to do their best to be really difficult for the government. They're saying that, you know, all likelihood if we get a Tory government, they're expecting a Conservative government to be um, even harsher on the civil service than than um, a Labour government. So so they're trying to make some wins while they think they can. I mean, what what's happened last night was that the government rushed through a deal with the other unions. So they've got the five other unions that work in the civil service to sign up to this deal. And they say that PCS is out on a limb. The problem is PCS represents about 270,000 um, civil service workers um, and the other unions represent just over 100,000 between them. So they've still got a problem on their hands. Polly Curtis and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. The concept is to drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. They're grown from human DNA, mixed with DNA of the natives. Marine in an avatar body. That's a potent mix. You get me what I need, I'll see to it you get your legs, babe. Your real legs. Hell yeah, sir. Looks like you. This is your avatar. Just relax and let your mind go blank. 
Avatar, James Cameron's 3D blockbuster, is a front-runner to do well at this year's Oscars. Zan Brooks says The Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow's film about Iraq, is another big contender. Well, I think that this year's race, uh, as was widely predicted, is coming down to two pictures. There's officially, there's... Ten films nominated for the the crowning Best Picture Oscar, but really there's two films that are, that are kind of joint first among equals, which are The Hurt Locker and Avatar. Now this is a sort of interesting choice for Hollywood because they're very very different films. They're basically one's a film about a bomb disposal team in Baghdad, and the other's fi- is a film about um, 3D blue space aliens with long tails. Um, but it's also a choice for the Academy whether it rewards Hollywood, I guess, and Hollywood's ability to push the boundaries of technology with stereoscopic cinema um, and also its ability to just make money, Avatar's broken records as the most profitable film ever made, or whether they, they take the road less travelled, I guess, and go for a low-budget film that's barely turned a profit but is at least maybe about the world that we're living in now and the issues that, that we're currently facing um, over in Iraq. Now, you said there were 10 films uh, nominated this year for Best Film. That's more than usual, isn't it? Yeah, it's the first time that's happened since, I think, 1943, when when Casablanca won. Um, The reasoning for that was, I think, that the the Oscars were seen as a bit elitist, and it was a bit sort of critics' favourites, like There Will Be Blood or No Country for Old Men, that maybe the, the great mass of the public hadn't gone to see. So in throwing the doors open, it, in theory, allowed for something like The Hangover or Star Trek to be kind of brought in into the party. But that actually hasn't happened. Um, another argument was that it, it would might allow um, for foreign language films to be included as well and just have a more of a broad church. And again, that hasn't really happened. Um, so... I don't, it remains to be seen whether they'll, they'll stick with this or not. I mean, the danger is now that you've got like these eight red herrings after the, the Avatar and the Hurt Locker um, that's just going to bump out the running time of, of the Oscars telecast because you're just going to have to kind of keep name-checking all these films that aren't actually going to win anything. Any potential British success? We always have to ask that question. It's always a, a bit irrelevant on the night, really, but um, still, it'd be nice to see something, wouldn't it? In terms of nominations, I think that the Brits have done better than maybe they would have been predicted to do. Um, they're, they're well represented in the acting categories. You've got Colin Firth in A Single Man, who was fantastic in A Single Man. It's the best role that he's ever done by, by a country mile. Um, you've got Helen Mirren, who, of course, won for The Queen uh, in, in The Last Station, although uh, The Last Station is pretty bad and she's pretty kind of hysterical in it. Um, you've also got some writers in there. You've got Armando Anucci and Nick Hornby. Nick Hornby for the adaptation of An Education and Armando Anucci for obviously for In the Loop. None of them, I, I, I think, are favourites. But in terms of just representation, they're there. Zan Brooks. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash film. Also on The Guardian's website today, the UK's first electric sports car is the Tesla Roadster. The Guardian's BB van der Zee took it for a test drive. Does accelerate quite fast. Bloody hell, it's very good. We're just doing 70 miles an hour, and we went to that in about six seconds flat. But of course, that's not the important thing about a car. Its energy efficiency is what's important. But if it goes fast as well, that's not bad, is it? Of course, it, it is a dream car, but the reality of driving is this. Rain, grey skies, stuck in a queue on the M4, <laughs> slowly grinding back into London. Is it really worth having a Tesla for this? 
You can see BB test driving the Tesla Roadster at guardian.co.uk slash video. Claire Short has appeared before the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war. Short, who resigned as International Development Secretary after the invasion, said that the then Chancellor Gordon Brown had been marginalised as Tony Blair sidelined the cabinet. She said Blair hadn't told the truth about the war and nor did his former Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith. I think he misled the cabinet. It certainly misled me, but people let it through. Sorry, who misled the cabinet? The Attorney General. I think now we know everything that we know about his doubts and his changes of opinion and what the Foreign Office legal advisers were saying and that he'd got this private side deal that Tony Blair said um, there was a material breach when Blix was saying he needed more time. I think for the Attorney General to come and say there's an unequivocal legal authority to go to war was misleading. And I must say, I never saw myself as a traditionalist, but I was stunned by it because of what was in the media about the view of international lawyers. But I thought, this is the Attorney General coming just in the teeth of war to the Cabinet. It must be right. And I think he was misleading us. The Guardian's sketch writer, Simon Hoggart. Well, I must say it was the most entertaining evidence we've had at Chilcot yet. Uh, she doesn't mind what she says. She doesn't use Mandarin language. She uh, doesn't say, I found myself uh, uh, somewhat in disagreement with the emphasis of what he said. She says he was lying, that kind of thing. So she came straight out with it. She painted a picture of a completely dysfunctional government in which uh, Tony Blair made all the decisions. Uh, they... Um, cabinet she said we had little chats in cabinet she made it sound like what you might do have around the water cooler with some of your colleagues you know you might uh, discuss what was on celebrity big brother last night uh, virtually there were no uh, real substantive discussions about iraq at all everything was decided so as to fit the 24-hour news cycle parliament was reduced to a rubber stamp why had she stayed in office well she said she'd been promised by tony blair that george bush was going to bring the un to the front in restructuring iraq and he would accept the notion of a roadmap and she thought a palestinian state well uh, that's kept her on board she didn't resign until after the invasion but then she realized none of this was true it wasn't going to happen so she did resign and she used very bold demotic language um, she felt she'd been deeply misled that people like her were completely marginalized she said that gordon brown the chancellor of the exchequer as he was then who had to pay the money for all this adventuring in the east in mesopotamia he'd been marginalized as well whether the chilcot inquiry will take it on board i don't know they look rather startled much of the time you got the impression that they felt that this was not the way things should be expressed that uh, there was a certain language for saying matters like that and it was no good coming on as Claire Short did just saying what she meant and coming straight out with it uh, so how seriously they'll take her evidence remains to be seen but it was jolly entertaining while it lasted Simon Hoggart Why is it that in westerns the bad guy pulls the gun first, but the good guy's faster on the draw? That's the subject of research by psychologists at Birmingham University. With the details, our science correspondent Ian Sample. Well, you know how there's a sort of Hollywood western movie cliche whereby our cowboy wanders into a bar and a, 
a, a scoundrel pulls a gun on him and our hero reacts to that but still manages to get the shot in so he pulls faster and dispatches with the baddie um this research is showing that there's something in that actually this isn't just bad hollywood scripting that when we react to something we're faster we move faster than if we initiate that move so your cowboy who decides i'm going to shoot this guy and pulls the gun himself actually moves slower than the person who sees him doing it and reacts to counter it and did they have sort of uh, simulated gunfights in the laboratory in order to to uh, ascertain these results yeah we can call them mock-up gunfights but that's a bit of a stretch because essentially what they had was two guys or two two people sat opposite each other on a desk and they had three buttons in front of them and they have to start by having their hand on the middle button each and then when one of them moves they have to basically do a sequence of presses when one of them moves the other one has to do the same sequence and the experiment was all about seeing whether you're faster if you start things than if you react to them. And it, it goes down to the real heart of how these neural circuits come about. Like, did we evolve to be very quick at reacting to things without thinking? And is that quicker than if we actually think I'm going to do something and it's more of a planning ahead issue? So what are the practical uh, applications of this research? Well, it doesn't have much practical use for gunslingers because although you're faster if you react to someone pulling a gun on you, you don't react fast enough to make any difference. So you're still going to get shot if someone pulls a gun. You, you will move faster, but not fast enough. It probably does have some sort of uh, impact on some other scenarios, which are probably a bit more realistic for most of us, like dodging things in, when you're driving down the street, which we might have experienced. I mean, basically, you'll make a move in your car before you particularly thought about it. Um, and that's really what this gets to, is looking at the underlying neurology of how we respond and make motions in the world. Ian Sample. Gordon Brown has promised a referendum on an alternative vote system. It may divide Labour and embarrass the Tories. The Prime Minister says those elected to Parliament in future should have the support of over 50% of voters, as our columnist Julian Glover explains. Well, out of the blue few weeks to go till the election. Gordon Brown's given a speech which he's tried to redefine politics. He says the divide at the election will be between the party of change and the party of no change. He wants Labour really to offer a constitutional revolution. He's come up with some detail as to what that might be. And one thing he says is that there maybe should be a written constitution by uh, 2015, the anniversary, 800 years since Magna Carta. So it's a pretty big package. Um, the thing that will catch attention is alternative vote, which would be a referendum on changing the voting system. But there are also other bits in it too. So lots of constitutional people are quite excited. However, they've heard it all before. And that's where the tricky part begins. Well, I mean, as you said, a bit of a surprise, isn't it? I mean, he's never been an advocate of voting reform before. So why now? Well, why now? Because there's an election coming up. There's an election that Labour might lose. The Tory party is opposed to alternative vote, um, opposed to any change at all. Labour's been a bit split. He's taken a position. He's able to define something in the election and say, this is what I stand for. Um, and of course, it might be attractive to the Lib Dems if there was a hung parliament. So will this wrong foot the Tories? You know, is it a canny political move for, for Gordon Brown, even if we don't necessarily believe he's 100% sincere about uh, wanting the voting reform? Well, I think the sad thing is that as soon as we get a speech like this, we all do begin talking about, you know, will it upset the Tories? What does this mean for the Lib Dems? And I'm guilty of that too we really ought to be looking at what's in the speech and then asking, will any of it happen? Um, the Tory party will just say, this is another stunt from Gordon Brown, a prime minister who's so cynical he'll do anything to get re-elected, even though he won't. Um, the reality is there are some good ideas in the speech and it'd be nice if they happened. Um, 
well, is what's the prospect of that? I don't think too great. Even though the um, legislation is supposedly going to be pushed through before the election? Yeah, in Parliament, for about the last 18 months, there's been a bill going through. It started off being called the Constitutional Renewal Bill. Then it became the Constitutional Reform and Governance Bill because it didn't really renew the Constitution. It just tidied it up a bit. And it went through the last uh, session of Parliament. It's come back into the next one. It's still going through the Commons. They were debating it yesterday. Um, it keeps getting rewritten. It's a, it's a bit like a sort of dinner party where all the dishes get taken away and new ones put on the table. Everyone's still sitting there and it hasn't got to the end. It hasn't got much connection with the beginning. And now where we're at is that the government's trying to table uh, amendments which will allow a referendum to take place on alternative vote by October 2011. So there'll be a few days to debate this. I don't think that's enough. I think it'll fall in the uh, process of kind of winding up Parliament before the election. And if that happens, Gordon Brown will be able to say, I back reform, the Tories blocked it. And that, of course, is probably his real aim. Julian Glover. Phil Maynard was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>